This is Cinephile. This is incredible. One of the best actors alive here in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Sheridan has professed admiration for Clint Eastwood's towering anti-Western Unforgiven and dark Night of the Soul dramas from Michael Mann. Both are reference points for his adept mix of masculine posturing and wounded soul-searching. That's from John Wenzel, the Denver Post, talking about Wind River, one of two films that we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Great to have you with us, as always, on iTunes is where you can find us. Please give us a rating. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. There is a rating at a five stars. Leave a review. That's how we keep on going. Um, coming up, not only Wind River... Also a movie called Score, documentary about music and motion pictures. Last Rampage, if you listened last time, that was the live podcast that I hosted. Robert Patrick, Dwight Little, etc. from this new crime film. Uh, we'll play you an excerpt from those interviews. Morgan Freeman's best films and God Doth Have a Sense of Humor. Dan Stanzik, I hope heaven has a giant shine box for Frank Vincent. Rest in peace. A great character actor, especially in Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Casino, and I loved him in The Sopranos. He'll be the focus of our Scorsese stories. But first and foremost, in the interests of uh, self-promotion, Chris Connolly, who uh, was a part of the Oscars All Access show with me and Ben Lyons, Sophia Carson, Troy Gentile, he sent me an email last week saying congratulations. And sure enough, uh, you heard the moonlight drop there. ABC's The Oscars All Access won the Emmy unscripted interactive program so of course the, the emmys that all of you will be watching will be this sunday hosted by colbert which i can't wait to see but you have all the other categories which you know they have the the, the pre-emmys so to speak the emmys before the emmys and sure enough thanks to ben lyons who's the one who hooked me up with being there outstanding creative achievement in interactive media within an unscripted program the winner goes to abc's the oscars all access so dan i'm an emmy winner Congratulations. We got to gotta update our imaging. We, Cinephile is hosted by <laughs> Emmy Award winning Adnan Verk. Are you going to get a physical Emmy? That is, of course, the first major question that anybody would ask. Uh, I sent Megan, who's the producer, who uh, she you know tweeted out some pictures of her receiving the Emmy. And she's, of course, the one who, who organized everything. So I just sent a quick, hey, congratulations. So thrilled to be a part of it. She's like, oh, thanks, Adnan. And I didn't feel it was appropriate to then ask, do I get. Oh, you're get... the talent. That's totally appropriate. So I'm going to go through Ben lines. I'll, I'll text Ben or I'll call Ben. I'll say, all right, can you talk to Megan? Do we get one? Like, just... You're the one that announced that Moonlight <laughs> won Best Picture. That's right. what went viral. Right. But you, if... there is no Emmy without you doing that, I don't think. I appreciate it. But if you look at the category, it's crazy. Creative achievement in interactive media within an unscripted program. That's nothing. With the that audience, I'm... that's you. The, the audience was interacting <laughs> with you. You are the audience. By the right. way, yeah. you're a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony away from the EGOT. <laughs> I love it. Dan Stanzik, one-man PR machine. Which brings us to uh, the sore point last time about my reviews and my man Mike Benzani. And you have to take this upon yourself, Dan. You've got to talk to Pete Genesini and find out where we can place this in a file. Because... I'm hearing deaf ears from Genesini. I don't think he cares that much. But we've got to put this somewhere. Genesini's all in. I'll talk to him. All right. So um, Bonds immediately listened to last time, and he was he was furious. So he said, I was listening to the pod on the way home last night. Thanks for the shout-out. Your boy Dan got my goat a little when he was giving it to you for your high average rating. I added the Rotten Tomatoes ratings to the cinephile, and the average Rotten Tomatoes rating for all of your reviews is 79%. And your average review is a 3.1. So you're generally reviewing good movies. Tell Dan to suck it. Don't let these stats get in the way of a good story. <laughs> Cinephile 2.0 now is what Bonds has put together. So hopefully we'll get that out there for the people um, at some point in time. All right, let's um, let's talk some movies. So I had, I had a night off, Danny. Um, 
going through my vast DVD collection. Guess what movie I popped in? You and I have never discussed this movie. I hope you like it as much as I do. I ain't seen it in a few years. How am I supposed to guess what movie we've never discussed before? Former Best Picture winner. Ooh. Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> no. Blu-ray five years ago? The Artist. No, good guess. Same year as The Social Network, which some quibbled should have won Best Picture. Uh, what beat it? Social Network was more kind of yeah, pretty Yeah, was it Zero Dark Thirty? No, this was like a classic Hollywood film. Colin Firth, Jeffrey oh, Rush. King's speech? Like, popped in the King's oh, speech geez. on a Wednesday Colin night. Colin Firth won Best Actor, too, right? I got to admit, it was a little dry. Like I didn't, I didn't feel the need to go through the whole thing. I just like the first scene where Jeffrey Rush meets him, and I love the ending, of course, when he does the speech. That, that great scene when they first meet, because, you know, Colin Firth's King George VI is so apprehensive about doing this, and he's just an irritable crank. And he starts smoking, and Rush goes, no, 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 not here, my castle, my rules. And Colin Firth's like, what do you mean? He goes, my doctor tells me it relaxes me. He goes, I, I don't find sucking cigarette smoke into one's lungs can be healthy. And he goes, but the doctor said it. He goes, they're idiots. And he said, they've been knighted. He goes, well, that confirms it then. <laughs> really literate script, well-directed by Tom Hooper. And the ending is great. Of course, when the king gives the speech, at the end, Jeffrey Rush says, well done. And he goes, he still stumbled on the W's, and Colin first says, well, I had to stumble a little bit. Otherwise, they had to know that it was me. But it's a really smart movie, classically done. I didn't remember that it was a pretty big debate, though, if that should have won or Social Network. The Social Network fans said that was a real contemporary movie. Like, it was really about Facebook and our generation. The King's Speech is a nice, well-made, tasteful movie, but it's, you know, it's all these classic movies about England 300 years ago. Who cares? That was their theory. But when I watched one of the Q&A on the DVD, Ben Lines is one of the blurbs. I'm watching the Q&A, and it goes, oh, new film. And then it goes, destined to be one of the best pictures of the year. Ben Lyons, E. Speaking of Ben, did we ever get his top ten? He moved. He's now part owner of a deli in Los Angeles. It's called, like, Haskell's Deli. He's he's, he's just never gave us a top ten. I mean, 10. he tweets about the Knicks a lot, and I love him for it. Like, Porzingis is going to have a huge year, and let's go. But we need that top ten. He's an avid listener, so I guarantee he'll listen, and hopefully he'll send us a top ten. But well, not... this is like the fifth time I've mentioned yeah, it. It's, it's true. It's going to be a little bit dated by the time we get around to it. It'll be 2018. But he may be getting me, getting me uh, an Emmy. So that's the King's Speech. I also watched Heat again the other day, a movie you and I haven't discussed. I- I'm assuming you like it. Yeah, I mean, I think the hype for it, I mean, I was nine when it came out, but the yeah. Pacino and De Niro on the screen at the same time, for the first time, really, was... I mean, it's fine. I, surpri- I don't think it's that great. I was about to say, you surprised at all. Did not receive any Academy Award recognition. Was not nominated for Best Picture. There was no. Not really. Right. You thought it was a solid crime yeah. film. Yeah. It's funny watching it again. It, it's really atmospheric. I love the way Michael Mann shoots it. And the bank robbery scene is is tremendous. Um, for the most part, it's well acted. But some of those scenes of dialogue, it's either like really crisp and authentic, or it's just like howlingly bad. I'll give you an example of a good one. Val Kilmer when he's talking to De Niro. This is early on, and like he's been kicked out of the house. He's drinking again. Charlene, played by Ashley Judd's mad at him. And uh, De Niro says, you got something on the side. And he goes, this is nothing regular, which is like he's talking about how much he loves me. He's like, oh, nothing regular. Yeah, nothing steady. And he goes, how about her? He goes, nothing. He goes, you sure? He's like, yeah, nothing. And then later, he, De Niro's kind of inferring that he should walk away, and he just goes, hey, man, for me, the sun rises and sets with her, which I thought is a beautiful line. Like, I love that line. But then later, you get these scenes, like the scenes with Pacino and Diane Venora, his wife, are just so on the nose. Like the one part that she says to him, you hunt for the scent of your prey. And he goes, I got to hold on to my angst. Keeps me sharp on the edge where I got to be. And I'm like, nobody talks this way. Like some of those, some of those, like I, I couldn't imagine the cutting room. They're going like, mm, is that a little bit too? I, I, we get it. it. It's not a very original story. Obsessed cop, career criminal. He's lonely, finds Amy Brenneman. He can't stay focused because he's on his third marriage. But I mean, Sometimes you can subvert that. I think because of the technical expertise and the the music and the whole theme of it, it works. But some of that dialogue. And the other crux of it, which is always debatable, and I need your thought on this, Dan, because I think De Niro is lean and mean. He's excellent. I think Val Kilmer's great. Ashley Judd, Amy Brenneman. Pacino's my favorite actor. But is Pacino's performance in Heat a great performance? Because he's playing Vincent as this outsized character. And Michael Mann told him, De Niro's going to be quiet and reserved, so your character has to be theatrical. You get killed walking your doggy. Or is it a terrible Pacino performance, and it was the tipping point for when he started to become a character of himself and just started yelling all the time? Well, you, you've you already gone on the record, and you said Scent of a Woman is when he overdid it, and that's actually when he won an Academy Award. Right, which um, three years before Heat. Right, so you you already, you that, that, that predates Heat. 
Um, I would say it is not a great performance. Yeah. Like if we've never done the actor showcase of Pacino, but if right. we did, yeah. that would be nowhere near the top five. That is and, my, and, and he hasn't made a great movie in in twenty five years, really. Insomnia, two thousand one, right? That's probably the a, a only one. Yeah, I don't think that'd many. be in his top five either. No, no, you're right. So if Heat's not even in in Pacino's top eight, we'll call it. Yeah, how yeah. can we say it's a great role? No way. Yeah, yeah no, I think I'm, I'm with you on that. It's it, it's funny. I have people who just but he's so entertaining. You know, he's just screaming at Tom Look. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But I mean, sometimes it just seems like he's just barking for no reason. But but. I do love the coffee shop scene. Great. Like, as Dan said, the whole hype was these two guys together, and both those guys knocked out of the park. It's a wonderful scene. If you haven't seen Heat, came out way back in 1995. Go check it out once again as I revisited that film from Michael Mann. Speaking of Michael Mann, I read that blurb there from the film critic from the Denver paper who said Wind River reminded him of that in some ways, and that's the first film that we're reviewing today. Wind River is the story about a murder which takes place on a native reservation, and there's an FBI agent played by Elizabeth Olsen, Callow youth is being served. You can tell right away she's out of her element, isn't used to uh, murders, and certainly something of this kind of severity. Um, but they're sending her there because she's the closest to the reservation, which immediately raised the issue. I was like, well, there must be something closer. Like, there has to be some Wyoming FBI. But regardless, she's flown in from Vegas. And Jeremy Renner plays a guy who is a hunter, literally a hunter. That is his job. And he's the one that first discovers the body. And Olsen quickly realizes that she's out of her depth. And Renner is, is there helping her just, you know, because obviously they're finding the body and going over it. And, and she kind of asks, kind of recruits him. Listen, can I help you? I don't know the land of the land here, and it's just all snowy and bleak and freezing. And she shows up. She's not ready for the weather. And uh, right away, you know, the other FBI agents are kind of mocking her. So you've got this kind of fish-out-of-water feel to it, uh, this, uh, this character who's out of her depth. Um, but it becomes this really heavy drama, uh, which is not only about trying to find the murder of this young girl, but also about Renner's own backstory. And you soon come to realize that he himself is dealing with his own demons and the fact that he lost a girl around the same age. And uh, they really play it well. When Olsen has to get dressed up to go to, to deal with the, the weather because she's not ready for it, she's wearing his dead daughter's clothing. So it's when Renner, imagine you're seeing your daughter's clothing on somebody else who's like a young girl. It just kind of throws him off right away. And it's, you can already tell he's unnerved by it. And it's a shame I hadn't seen the movie before Renner actually paid us a visit here in Bristol because I thought he was terrific in it and it would have been nice to ask him some questions about it. But in terms of playing a character who is brooding and, and dealing with these uh, pain of the past, Renner's excellent. You know, you think about uh, Sean Penn in Mystic River or Jack Nicholson, The Crossing Guard. You know, there's many actors who have kind of taken on that challenge of, of playing someone who's dealing with the death of a loved one. Um, particularly a daughter, but I thought Renner was excellent. There's one scene in particular where he tells Olsen, you know, she says, okay, what happened? Like, finally reveals me what has happened. And he's got a great line, speaking of dialogue, he says, you know, if you ever have kids, you can never lay your guard down, you know, not for a second. You've always got to keep your eye on them, which was impactful. Uh, so the story develops, and it becomes, like, like I said, this murder mystery. So on the one hand, you have this character study about Renner and what, you know, his relationship with Olsen, and then also trying to find the murder. So I enjoyed the human interest parts of it and the character study, what I didn't think was as strong was some of the plot contrivances, and literally there is a, a standoff in the movie, which I was like, you always hear that expression, and I thought of Heat, you know, that great scene, obviously, the bank robbery, because it's so well staged. This is literally like nine characters all pointing guns at each other. And listen, in Reservoir Dogs, it's fine, you got three guys, but once it's like over six, you go, how, in, like, it just felt so implausible when I was watching the scene. Speaking of dialogue, a few of the scenes also had some really on-the-nose dialogue that felt a little heavy-handed, so... As much as I appreciate the story and I like the impact of it, I did think some of the plot was a little bit uh, wonky. And some of the dialogue, like I said, was a little bit too on the nose. But I'm still giving it three Maple Leafs. It's from the director, Taylor Sheridan. He's the guy who did Hell or High Water and also did Sicario. So this is the third of his trilogy of he's saying stories about the American frontier. And what I really something else that I enjoyed about it, this kind of lends it some originality, is he's focusing on um, what happens, particularly with native peoples on these reservations and they show statistics that the end crawl the, the, the end crawl can be really impactful think of spotlight which i watched recently you know that last scene he says you know the, the phone hasn't stopped ringing and then the crawl comes up listen because of this case in boston they uncovered sex abuse crimes in all of these places you know from from brazil to cambodia to you name it the crawl at the end of wind river explains that uh, native women like they're, they're the most missing persons by a wide margin uh, if you go caucasian african-american latino asian etc native americans go missing all the time and part of it is that okay it's this this closeted guarded community but but as you can see in the movie it's just an afterthought for a lot of law enforcement they say okay you know what it's too tough to investigate no one's going to say anything we don't want to do the due diligence to, to discover the clues and follow through with it so 
I, I give any movie credit that makes me think about it afterwards, and I thought about it afterwards uh, you know, on the note of empathy, the fact that this happens so often and, and nothing is done about it. So kudos to Taylor Sheridan for, for tackling some subject matter that was a little bit different. So I liked Wind River. Once again, Three Maple Leafs. Check it out. It was a really uh, dull summer, aside from, uh, of course, Dunkirk. And I guess Wonder Woman was the number one box office movie. But Wind River, a movie that actually I thought was quite good. The critics reviewed it well. And uh, just like Hell or High Water came out in August. So hopefully Taylor Sheridan can uh, can make some magic. Although the latest Gold Derby, we don't have it ranking very high when it comes to Oscar picks. The other movie I want to review before we get to the last Rampage interviews is called Score. That's a motion picture documentary. And for anybody that loves music and loves the impact that it has on movies, well, obviously this is a must-see. And the story starts out just showing a couple of composers how they actually put together their films, and then away we go. And they're explaining just the lineage of movies and how, listen, silent films back then, of course, they were not silent. They did not have dialogue, um, but obviously they had music the whole time. So music's always been an integral part of movies. And as one of the composers explains, you know, either you have two types generally of directors who are asking for music. Either they will show you a rough cut of the movie or give you the basic sense of it, or they will just say, give me a music bed, give me the music, and then I can just lay it out wherever I want. It can cross-cut between different scenes and go from there. Um, and so obviously that's the challenge. And what the movie really nails is seeing all these composers in their habitat. You see them um, playing with like a xylophone, playing on the piano, playing with drums, playing the guitar. Uh, you see them actually in charge of the orchestra and all the strings. And in terms of music background, they explain how Alex North, he was a really important composer because he did Streetcar Named Desire. That was the first soundtrack that actually had jazz in it. Um, and, and obviously they play the music in there, so it fits with what you're saying. Probably the heavyweight champion, I would go with Bernard Herrmann, uh, Hitchcock's longtime composer. And Hitchcock loved him so much. You know, Normally when you're watching a movie, you have the credits, it'll go screenplay and then director. Hitchcock revered Herman and thought he was so important to his movies, he gave him almost second billing if you look at the movies. And particularly this show, Psycho, that great scene, of course, the shower sequence, and how that music just hammers you and it makes you feel like you're seeing a lot more than you actually did. Um, so Herman Oxy, Vertigo obviously is a great soundtrack as well, obviously one of my favorite movies, and I think it's Hitchcock's best. They explain Vertigo, why that music was so important as well. And then about 30 minutes in, they get to, I think for, for guys like me and Dan and probably most people, I would say the GOAT, and that is John Williams. My friend Kerry Chow one time, because John Williams recently got the AFI tribute, American Film Institute, Lifetime Achievement Award. He was like, you know, how great is John Williams? And just to be a contrarian and to bug Kerry, I said, well, I'm more of a Morcone fan. Of course, Morcone did the Spaghetti Westerns, uh, the Untouchables, and the Hateful Eight, which he finally won an Oscar for. Oh, but that was just to annoy Chow. In all honesty, Morcone's great. But John Williams, you start to listen to each of those soundtracks. Just start with Jaws. Like, just how inspired was he to go? The dun, 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 dun. Like, how, how did he come up with this? And they show Spielberg talking with him. This is way back in the mid-'70s. And he actually himself was a musician. He had been working on, I want to say it was guys, West Side Story. He was one of the musicians, um, not actually in West Side Story, but was a part of the music for it. So he didn't naturally come to composing with that classical background. But Spielberg kind of discovered him. They started working together. And... You know, sometimes with the composers, you have a motif. So you have that close encounter to the last kind. You know, dun, 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 dun. You know it goes from there. So then that familiar motif comes. And they explain with the movies, when there's that motif, it, it tells you what to think. In Lord of the Rings, they use familiar motifs a lot. So when you hear that music, you go, oh, that's Aragorn's music or that's Frodo's music. So it kind of tells the audience what to think. Um, so Williams is incredible. I mean, they show like 10 minutes of it. Raiders of the Lost Ark is an amazing one. Um, and even the Raiders Lost Ark, one of the composers talks about it and says, you know, with Williams, it's like he finds that indelible, infectious rhythm that everybody knows that they hum. But then the other parts of the score are actually really well done as well. And it's almost like a filmmaker. It's like, okay, this one's for you. This one's for me. This one's for the audience so everybody will know about it. But this is actually the music that's really good. And with Star Wars, again, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, everybody knows the opening with the opening crawl. But he goes, if you listen to Emperor's March, like that is great music and like it's really well composed. And if you're a real musician, if you're a musician's musician, as they would say, you'll appreciate the different music within John Williams' scores rather than just the major ones that you know, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I happen to think Schindler's List is a great soundtrack. I mean, that, that's a soundtrack that'll make you cry the way he uses that single violin. And it showed that he didn't just have to have these big, big up-tempo orchestral old school scores. He could do something really haunting. Um, and moving. 
And they talk about different composers. Jerry Goldsmith's a famous one on Chinatown. He insisted on having four pianos. He said, why do you have to have four pianos? But Jerry goes, that's the way it's going to work. And again, he, he would put together music for that. Uh, Thomas Newman's a composer who kind of has his own feel to it. And one guy who now Dan and I like a lot, Hans Zimmer. A lot of Hans Zimmer's featured in the movie. Christopher Nolan's guy. And, and they explain, they go, the way that Hans Zimmer uses strings is like using guitars. Like he just kind of bangs it together. Like it's got this real aggression to it. It's like he's, he's doing Led Zeppelin like with guitars. Um, and they show the Dark Knight score, of course. And Inception is a really good score. They played some music from that. Um, so I, honestly, if, if you love music and you love what scores can provide, I think it's really good. My only criticism of the film is I would have liked to have seen the filmmakers talking about the music. I appreciate the fact he put the spotlight on those musicians, on those composers, in their natural habitat. But I would have loved to have seen contemporary Spielberg talking about what John Williams did. I would have loved to have seen Christopher Nolan telling you the impact of Hans Zimmer. I would have liked to have seen... Francis Ford Coppola talking about why um, the music is so important that he's had, you know, from Nino Rota or whomever he's had in his film. So that was the only downside to it. But um, I really thought it was a good film uh, from a USC graduate, in fact, our friend Claire Atkins. She went to school with him. So he's going to put together and wrote and directed it. So I know Mark Simon will be all over it because he loves his documentaries. Score, a motion picture documentary, uh, definitely a film that you would enjoy. Dan, you got to appreciate the music of the movies, right? It's a separate subset. Probably doesn't get enough love oftentimes. I don't think it's talked about enough either, and I think people don't even realize how impactful it is when they're watching a movie. Like, we talked about it after we saw Dunkirk together, that that music kind of sets the tone the entire way, and it was almost like nonstop, and we didn't really breathe yeah. until the music stopped, like halfway through, and we are like, Okay, we can take a breath now. Oh my goodness! And it was a quick breath, and then the rest of the movie, the music's hammering again. Right. So it's it, people, even like I would say, even all these sports center pieces that we do, like all this stuff. For example, today on Mike and Mike, we played Adam Schefter's speech to Michigan before they played this weekend. Right. And the music set underneath it makes it seem like it was the greatest speech of all time. But if you just had the Schefter audio, you would be like, eh. That's okay. But you have the music, and you're like, oh, my God, that was great. But I mean, we love Schefter, but he's like this 5'6 guy. Is he really right. pumping up the Michigan players right. to play whoever the hell they were playing? No, but you, like, you hear the music, and it's packaged nicely together, and it was amazing. Yeah, they, speaking of that, using music that you wouldn't expect, remember the Titans, which is a movie I don't particularly care for. The music's really good in it. They show Obama used that, I think, in 08 after one of his speeches, maybe Democratic Convention. I don't know specifically, but the, they show the composer. He goes, well, I wasn't crazy about it because they didn't ask me. Like, if they wanted to use it, that's one thing. But a buddy might call me and goes, hey, they're using your music. Like, Obama <laughs> finished his speech, and all of a sudden, bam, remember the Titans for like 20,000 people. Are, ah! He goes, like, talk about an emphasis. Talk about an exclamation point to one of your speeches. And he goes, look, I have no issue if you want to use it for, for political gain, but just give me a heads up. Another good soundtrack, Mad Max. They show the way that he literally creates that soundtrack with all the drums and the way that George Miller wanted it just to be pounding. we got to do that one day, one of these podcasts, your top five soundtracks oh. or scores. Like, I think I think there's something here. Oh, I agree. It would be tough to narrow it down just to top five. I feel like it would be top 50. But, yeah, if you have a favorite, let us know. Tweet us at Cinephile ESPN. And, of course, we're also available on Instagram, Cinephile ESPN. Morgan Freeman's best films plus an honorarium of Frank Vincent. But first... We hear from the cast and crew of Last Rampage, a new crime film out, stars Robert Patrick, Heather Graham. You'll hear Robert coming up. You'll hear the director, Dwight Little. You'll hear one of the screenwriters and a couple of other actors as well. So enjoy Last Rampage, currently um, coming out to theaters soon. It'll be available on VOD as of September 22nd. Uh, well, thanks so much, guys. Thanks for terrific experience. Uh, Robert, I'll start with you. What was it about this story um, Based on a true story, of course, crime, prison break, set back in Arizona in 1970. What was it about the story that attracted you to it? Well, there's so many things on so many levels that uh, were uh, really attractive about it. Um, if you believe in good, you got to believe in bad. Uh, this has biblical undertones to it and overtones. And uh, uh, I play a good guy throughout the year on a TV show and uh, Dwight sent me the script. I've worked with Elvaro and, uh, ooh, I get to come up here a little. Alright. <laughs> um, thank you. We got an even higher chair. Right. <laughs> from the bottom to the top. Uh, but it, it, um, it was really appealing to me because um, it was a total juxtaposition to what I do Nine to five, and um, I thought it was just a rich script. Um, 
he's amazing with dialogue and the way uh, the way he weaved the story, and it's just um, you know uh, such a powerful story. Uh, a man who's willing to walk all over everybody to get his freedom and um, his his children. Um, it's not every day you get to play a, a, a character that's such a monster, and he was literally the devil. And um, it was it was uh, just a wonderful challenge, and uh, to, to work with Dwight in a, in, a, in a feature film format as opposed to some of our TV stuff. It, it, you know, you tell a really rich story, um, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, 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 you know, the opportunity to play somebody as evil as this uh, was irresistible. <laughs> I hate to say it. I mean, I watch the movie and I cringe when I watch it. I'm just like, oh my god, what a piece of, you know, just despicable. But it's a true story, and we have to remind ourselves there's a lot of evil people out there in the world, and. Whenever you start to get a little bit too comfortable, uh, they're going to rise up and uh, expose themselves. So I, I um, love the point you made, Robert, about the biblical overtones. One of the best lines in the movie is that line about you know cleaner than a horse Bible because she's never touched. It. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's that's from El Moro. Yeah, and I know he's a church going guy. I'm a church going guy. Uh, you know, I believe in all that, and um, you know, you can't believe in heaven unless you believe in hell. So uh, that line in particular was uh, was outstanding. All right. Alvaro, how did you find the script? I mean, again, adapting the story based on a book, of course, true story. How challenging was that to take the source material? Of course, you've got to make changes to streamline it for a feature film, but how, how did you tackle that? Uh, I think that I was, uh, you know, definitely there was, a, there was a first draft of the script that existed, and, and that's the, the kind of blueprint that kind of uh, I worked from. But, but really, I think the story really opened up when I... I had been working with Dwight on it for several months, maybe almost a year. I hadn't really cracked how to tell the story. And when it really cracked for me was kind of a, in the realization that this was really a story about Donnie, the oldest son, realizing that his father's, you know, insane and is trying to do whatever he can to get his younger brothers out of the situation. And once that kind of opened up the world of the story to me, then the characters really just started talking. And so a lot of it is, uh, this is a true story, but a lot of it is just the way that the characters started talking. And as I was writing, rewriting the script over and over again, the characters revealed themselves to me. Randy to, um, uh, you know, the, the sons, Gary. You know, there's a, it's true, but it's, you know, it's, it's also made up at the same time, you know. So the dialogue stuff is just, was not me. It was the kid. It was the characters talking. Yeah, it's like uh, Ang Lee, the great filmmaker, once said, "You have to pretend to get closer to the truth." Sometimes it, it does make sense in that respect. Not only the great dialogue, Alvaro, but Dwight. It was so atmospheric. Um, reminded me in some ways of Hell or High Water, recent Southern crime film. Reminded me of One False Move, that great Carl Franklin movie. These are the, 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 the worst comparisons I've ever heard. That's not bad. <laughs> How are you able to, to kind of capture that tone? Because that's so critical in this kind of story. It has to feel authentic. The characters have to feel lived in. Well, I think it's, we were all here because of Al's script, first of, first of all. I mean, once you read those, I read the first 25 pages. I've been working with it for a while. Jason actually brought this book to me a long time ago. Um, we've been fooling around with it, couldn't crack it. I read Al wrote 25 pages, and I said, oh, my God, now we got a movie. And it's all, it's all on the page. And then what we tried to do is cast it as authentically as we possibly could. And then from there, the visuals began to grow. And we went out and found these locations that were just dusty and harsh and rugged and reflected this very, uh, very desolate world that the Tysons you know, lived in in that time in Arizona and so we went into that dusty brown world, and I think you can see how grimy these actors were. <laughs> they were messed up. But um, it's, it's for a director, it's script, 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 and then it's casting, 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 and then, uh, then you bring your art to it. But um, you, you know, once you have those two things in place, you're, you're, in, you're in a good position for success. 
I think you're being honest. I think you're being humble as well. So I appreciate the combination of both. Jason, you know, Robert's talking about something different from his 9-to-5 job. And, of course, you know for the Free Willie franchise, this could not be a greater departure. At least you're on the good side of the law. But, obviously, uh, totally it's so much more different. What was it like for you to approach this type of character? Uh, well, it was fun. Um, and, 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 obviously, challenging, like, for all the rest of the actors. You know, something... Um, that I've had, you know, the book since '96, and brought this to Dwight, and sort of playing with the story, the story, and the reason the story resonated with me because it was about father and his sons, and and the willingness for these these uh, these boys just to sort of, you know, put the blinders on because dad, you know, he's the, he's the father, he's the provider, and they want that relationship, and I. That those aspects of the story attracted me. The relationship between uh, the, the wife and 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 Gary was very disturbing, and then just Cooper's hunt for this guy. You know, it's all in the book, so it's, it's all floating there. And then, thankfully, uh, eventually, uh, this this road that I've been on led me to to getting it to Al through my way of Dwight. And just I'm just grateful to be sitting on the stage and have these incredible actors and these people and. There you go. Chris, sometimes, you know, these stories are so intense. Uh, you need to have some levity when, when it's not action, just to kind of break it up a little bit. And then sometimes Eric goes the other way, but it's intensity and services throughout to try to maintain that level. What, what did you find the experience was like in making this kind of movie? Um, well, that was, that was kind of the cool thing about the way that Dwight works. And, and we just, we a lot of it was just, you know, on the fly, there's a lot of, of uh, ad-libbing in the movie, but that, that's, I found it like that, that happens a lot when you when you start with, like, with the script, with a great script, it's like, this is another thing that, that, that Randy would say, you know, it just, it, I don't know, I, 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 I had fun. <laughs> the worst I ever <laughs> yeah, yeah. See that was an yeah. Maybe I don't know. But, <laughs> no, I don't know if it was or not. But it was. It was. A, it was just a thing where we. There were times. There was the thing in the in the back of the van when we were at uh, the brothers' house. That was, that was just White saying, "Hey, I like that." Oh no, it was Robbie saying, "I look the lighter being on looks cool because he's the DP." And so he liked the lighter, and then Dwight was like, just talk to, just kind of get in his ear. You know, I'm sitting in, in Donnie, behind Donnie's chair. He says, just, just go, just rolling. Well, here, here's the director you now. What, what I like to do is, is after we've had table read and we get out on location, give the, the crew the first shot, give them the setup, let them know what they're doing so they can get to work. And then we sit down, whether it's at picnic tables or... Uh, folding tables and folding chairs, and we just sit there. Remember, we'd all just sit around and we work these scenes. And it doesn't, you know, 20, 25 minutes, just hear them and listen. Al would always be there, make the little changes. And then by the time you're out to go to the floor, you figured it out. And, and um, you know, you can't, you can't do it uh, with the camera staring at you. You gotta just sit down and think. And then once your thinking time is done, then you have to jump into the filmmaking, which is tricky, you know, it's got to be in focus and it's got to be lived. And, <laughs> and it's all got to be done in less time than you have. And uh, so so the, the director note that I've learned is, is, you know, every minute you spend in rehearsal is, you know, three moments that you get back. So that's the way to do it. Get those actors rehearsed. Yeah, that was true. That was like the thing that made it really comfortable because we'd always work while the guys were setting up. We'd, we'd be, the, the actors would be working on stuff and, and um, it just got to a comfort level that uh, you know no one was worried, at least I wasn't, and then I didn't see anybody else worried about it either. When the camera was rolling, we always kind of knew that it was going to work. And, and we were on a, you know, a, we were working fast and we seemed to... We, we didn't ever feel like we we didn't get something. Right. You know, we we were there, and it was like, oh, that that was that was great. We can move on. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's it's a it's the most comfortable I've ever been on a, on a set. 
one of the most chilling scenes of the movie is that murder of that family, and you can feel the build to it. It's so suspenseful. Al, tell me about when you wrote it and conceived it, and then Dwight, tell me about the execution of it. The first family? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a moment that's in the script that's not in the movie that has always kind of like uh, stuck with me, which is, you know, which is in the book too, and the, the reality of what happened. Once they unload the weapons on the family in the car, there's silence for a moment. And then you hear the baby cry. And they go back to kill the baby. And that was like an element that, you know, we kind of talked about back and forth. Should that be in the movie? Should that not be in the movie? In the end, it's not in the movie. But, um, you know, to me, that was sort of like a key moment of like how, you know, to use this word, evil, this, you know, these guys were. Um, but there was something, you know, that whole, that whole, um, that whole scene was, was, you know, something that just, to me, it, it reveals so much about all of the different characters that are, you know, from the family, you, without knowing the family, you kind of know the family pretty quickly. You know, the woman is saying, this is my son, his name is Christopher Lyne. She's trying to identify, you know, this is a real person, it's not, you know. Uh, you have um, the kids, you know, uh, trying to comfort each other, this is going to be okay, you know. You have the moment where Gary asks asks Donnie, go get me a jug of water. And Donnie's like, all right, he's going to leave a jug of water for them, and we're going to go. But then Gary's like, no, 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 bring it back to me. And, you know, so there's a lot of, like, elements that I think kind of play out in a a scene that, that, you know, is kind of a harrowing moment in the movie. I'm not sure Gary, I've toyed around with this a lot in my own head, I'm not sure Gary Tyson knew until the very end that he was going to do that. And it wasn't until you took that drink of water that I knew that you that was going to happen. You know, it was like, even to the moment of him saying, get the water and take it to the family, I think he was still calculating how long would they be there before they were found. How, it, right? how many miles could they get behind them? And then he just calculated that it was them or him and uh, I think, I don't know if that was a nasty drink of water. <laughs> nasty drink of water, but I remember Chris and I and you, we're all sitting there talking and we're going like, well, so how do we deal with the fact we're going to kill this kid? And the, the, the what we came up with was we had a little conversation before where Chris and I were working it out and we kind of decided that that's going to sound weird, but from our character's point of view, it was a mercy killing. This poor baby's never going to be found. The predators are going to come in, or the, the vultures, the you know, the carnage, you know, everybody's going to come in and pick them apart, and uh, this poor baby's going to be left here. And geez, I feel bad about leaving the baby, and we should just kill it too. And I, you know, it's, that's well, Randy pretty said, sick. Randy said he did that kid a favor, right? Yeah, yeah. Later on, he does say that. But I remember that conversation. We we're all trying to how do we rationalize this? Yeah, it's a mercy killing. Yeah, and that was the yeah. thing that you did. It's it's in the movie too, where you like, you know what? Let's just let's just mumble a little a little uh, huddle before we do, it, so you can see that we're we're working it out right then. That was a that was a great idea. And Chris, I really appreciated your performance, especially seeing you here. Handsome man, you're, you're not like the way you said these guys are so grimy, just kind of dirty, and that kind of a character. I would imagine as an actor, you can kind of tiptoe that line and start to go uh, into cliches of this redneck, southern fight, etc. But like that character, um, I, I, I've seen him. I mean, I, I've stopped at gas stations. I've seen a guy like that. I, I, I can recognize that person. I swear I've seen them before. I don't know what they're capable of. But how did you find navigating that between, like I said, you don't want to dovetail into cliches, but this guy does kind of have that, uh, that redneck essence to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of grew up with those guys. I, I, uh, I was those guys. I am that guy. I'm in the movie character right now. Uh, that's really how I go through life. I, I just, I, I figured that, that, that uh, you know, that I didn't want to get into, like you were saying about the cliche business, um, 
Uh, I was worried about. I did. I did want him to be a chain smoker, and and I don't know how many. Of you got that done. You got that done. And it was one of those things where I was like, "Like, can I? <laughs> should I have a cigarette? I want to have another cigarette, but in this scene, in this scene, and it was like, well, this is not. And I ended up pretty much having a cigarette in every scene. But, but <laughs> yeah, I just thought because it was going to turn into it. And yeah, and I yell on my teeth up. And, <laughs> yeah, we went a little big on the yellow one day. It looked a little much, but um, those herbal cigarettes. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. A couple more, and then I promise we'll go to the crowd's ball. You know, but, I want to say something real quick. I just want to say, I mean, this is a true life story, and these these poor victims. I mean, this is just horrible, horrible, horrible. And we're sitting here talking about it. And it's, I mean, we're talking about it from an actor's point of view. This is an incredibly tragic event, and uh, families and survivors. I mean. God bless them, and, and uh, you know, I, I I can't imagine. It's 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 just that horrible, uh, and I don't want to lose sight of that. You know, there's some real people that are still torn up about it. Absolutely, you don't want to say something like that. One more, and I promise we'll go to the crowd. But I just want to ask you about directing Heather Graham, an actress who I don't think many would associate with this type of a role. How did you find working with her? Well, my first encounter. Uh, with, with Heather was on the phone and uh, she was interested in the script but wasn't fully uh, on board really because it was such a departure for her and uh, we spoke for about two hours and, and she was so thorough with her questions that she wanted to know what religion the Tysons were she wanted to know their family history she wanted to know everything about Dorothy uh, what her childhood had been and she was so deep into it in this phone call and I had been I had my head in this, so fortunately I could feel these questions. Um, and then after that uh, conversation, I think she realized that there was something in her past uh, that she could find to use for Dorothy. Um, her, her father was an FBI a man, and there had been some rigid uh, thinking in her family, and she had broken away from that, and I, I don't want to give away her life story, but she, she had things that she was able to to bring to Dorothy, um, and, and um, you know, I, I will tell you one just practical thing. You, you, you're on set, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and you need Heather Graham on set, and you're looking around, and I'm like, well, someone go to the base camp and get her. We need this shot, and over your shoulder, you know, you, don't, you hear, I'm here. <laughs> and, and she just sits on set, and she's ready, ready to go, so a complete pro. And um, just she was prepared, and uh, she was a pleasure, honestly. Actor Showcase. Morgan Freeman has a voice that belongs in the Smithsonian, but of course he's more than just a voice. He is a great actor as well. It pains me that I'm not going to include in the Actor's Showcase a movie he did called Street Smart. He plays this terrible um, hustler, you know, street thug. And it was a really important movie for him. came out in 1987, starred Christopher Reeve. Shout out to Will Reeve, his son who works at ESPN. Uh, because Freeman said, you know, it showed that I could play a bad guy. You know, I wasn't just some, some TV actor. I could actually have some skill to me. So Street Smart, you don't often see him as a villain, but I would have liked to include it, but I'm at least mentioning it. Just missing the cut. Again, speaking of great voices, it's tough not to get March of the Penguins in there because you can't imagine it without Morgan Freeman's voice. And also a little gem that won an Oscar called Driving Miss Daisy. Hoke, you're my best friend. Let's kick it off with number five. That would be Unforgiven, one of the great Westerns of all time. I don't think it's necessarily a stellar role for Freeman, but he's great in it, whether it's the fact that he's uh, seduced by all those prostitutes and <laughs> keeping his pants. He's apologizing to Clint about that, or the fact he's his loyal friend uh, who stands by William Money as he rides saddle one more time again. Unforgiven's a great film, and I think he lends. This is a word that I think often comes up with Morgan Freeman. A lot of gravitas. You, you think of Freeman, you're thinking of gravitas. He adds it in Unforgiven. He also adds it in Seven as a career cop just looking to step away. He's got one more case, and, of course, it's this gigantic case that he can't get rid of. Um, I loved his world-weary approach, the fact he's so cynical. He's so distrustful of Brad Pitt, this young, cocky detective. Although he's got that one scene where he just laughs maniacally when he meets Brad Pitt and his wife, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. They've got the trains overhead. But Morgan Freeman laughs. It's almost eerie. It's so creepy how happy he gets. But uh, particularly the way he invokes Hemingway in the final line of the movie. You know, uh, Ernest Hemingway said, the world is a great place and worth fighting for. You know, I believe in the second part. Number three is Glory. 
campfire scene alone, again, gravitas. He's the veteran. He's the guy. Listen, Denzel's fiery slave who's just so filled with piss and vinegar and wants to fight everybody. And then you've got Matthew Brodericks, who's conflicted character. You've got Kerry Owens, who's trying to help these guys out. Andre Brower, amazing. Uh, is a really intelligent member of the crew who's now kind of being taken down a peg. And then there's Morgan Freeman, the veteran, the chief, the captain. Keep them all on, on track. Number two is Shawshank Redemption, voice alone. Think of all the commentaries he does, how strong his narration is. I mean, just watch the last 10 minutes alone, and don't even watch the film. Just listen to the audio. You know, the way he says, get busy living or get busy dying, and the way he says, I'm going to go see my friend Andy. And number one, I'm going with Million Dollar Baby. This You could argue one versus two. You could probably go Shawshank one, Million Dollar Baby two. But I love both. I love Million Dollar Baby a little more as a film. Again, he's a character that's so critical to Clint Eastwood's uh, Frankie Dunn, uh, this world-weary trainer who's just undergoing a world of hurt and is unable to express it really to anybody except for Freeman's character. And I love that last scene between the two of them together. And again, it's Freeman's narration. Nobody's better than narration, uh, who again is, is basically writing a letter to Clint's daughter and just says, you know, I, I wanted to let you know what kind of man your father really was. Million Dollar Baby, Shawshank Redemption, Glory, Seven, Unforgiven, the best films of Morgan Freeman. What do we got missing? It might be one of the best top fives we've done. I mean, there's a lot to pick from here. I, I had written down all five of those, and so you got them. A uh, quick note on Street Smart, he was nominated for yes. an Oscar. That's supporting actor. Um, yeah. So that was early on in his career that really buoyed his career, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and Glory is one of those soundtracks that I know you love. Oh, I want to say it's Horner. a top five oh, yeah, soundtrack for you. Good memory. Um, Driving Miss Daisy, also nominated for an Oscar. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. The two I had that you did not mention. Kiss the Girls. No, no, not Kiss the Girls. Invictus. <laughs> yeah. Played Nelson right. Mandela. Yeah, that's true. And then this is just a personal one. Gone no. Baby Gone, of no, course. Geez, I knew. Of I course. I mean, not the lead role, but he's in it. Oh. And, I just... and, and Shawshank should be one, but that's, you know, like you said, two and one are debatable. But, yeah. You know. I was going through the filmography, I guess, for sure. Dan's going to make the case for Gone, gone yeah, Baby I mean, I have to, you know. <laughs> Fair gone enough. This far. Gone Baby Gone, honorable mention. A Scorsese story. One other note on The King of Comedy. I'd mentioned it last time on Cinephile, and then I, I went back and I had the time to watch the movie again, which is just so funny. Can you just say hi to my husband when he's in the hospital? I've got to get going. I hope you get cancer. May you get cancer. Then I watched the Q&A at Tribeca, which was in 2013. So it's Marty, it's De Niro, and then Jerry Lewis comes out. Jerry Lewis is unbelievable. He takes the glass and he's putting it in his lips. Like he, he just makes funny faces the whole time. De Niro and Marty are laughing. And when he, his first bit when he comes out there, he's like, hey, Marty, I love you. But he calls him Bobby. He goes, Bobby, great to see you. And he goes, so I just took the seven train. Right away, I thought seven train, John Rocker. And he goes, I just took the seven train. He goes, I haven't taken it in a long time. And he goes, I saw a guy, and he goes, he had a mohawk. And he goes, and it, sticking up where big spiky hair was blue, purple, yellow, and green, and I'm staring at him, and he stares back at me, and he says, what's the problem, old man? You never did anything unusual in your life? And I thought for a second, I said, no, actually, 20 years ago, I had sex with a peacock. I was wondering if you were the son. <laughs> Marty just explodes in laughter. De Niro gives it a good laugh, and then Marty's laughing so hard, too, because this is what we used to do in King Comedy, because we'd make Scorsese laugh so hard, he never asked about time. Where it's like, it's true, it's true. Because somebody going to have a gas mask. Marty Scorsese's going to have an asthma attack. He's laughing so hard. Sex with a peacock. Watch King Comedy again. Even better, watch the, the Blu-ray DVD, which I have for that Q&A. Jerry Lewis is fantastic. Well, the one joke he says, he goes, well, he goes listen, Marty's brilliant. He goes, but he was always, he, he was ridiculous. He goes, the first two nights is where I first come out of my dressing room and Rupert Pupkin is there, De Niro's character. And Marty didn't use me at all. He goes, so we're shooting, and it's, it's a night shoot. It's noon to eight. Or midnight day, excuse me, back-to-back nights. By the third night, was Marty, then Marty picks up the story. because It's like 2 a.m. And somebody goes, hey, Jerry wants to speak to you. He's in his trailer. I'm like, oh, okay, go over there. And Jerry Lewis says, Chris says, he goes, listen, I'm the consummate professional. You're paying me for my time, whatever you need. But if at some point in the middle of the night you feel like you're probably not going to use me, just let me know. Like, then I'll, I'll just get going. Like, but if you're going to use me, that's fine. I have no issue with it. And he said he felt so bad. He's like, oh, I'm so selfish. I'm just, just torturing Jerry Lewis. So he said he saw him years later at the Venice Film Festival. He goes, hey, Jerry, look, I'm on time. And right away, they started laughing. So they said there was a lot of takes making that movie. Because there was one scene where De Niro's asking the woman, he goes, are you speaking for you or are you speaking for Jerry? 
And Marty's not a guy who'll do a ton of takes, but he goes, we did like 25 takes because he goes, we just kept tinkering with it. He goes, Bob and I kept trying to figure out a little hostile, a little less hostile, a little more needy, a little more angry. He goes, there's a lot of violence in there. But Jerry Lewis is great. And at one point, De Niro says, he goes, you know, I hadn't seen the movie in so long because I thought Jerry was terrific. He goes, he really was really good. And um, he goes, well, obviously, the way Marty makes everything kind of come together. And he goes, you know, I don't normally watch my movies. I have to have some distance from it. But, you know, it's been like 30 years. So it's okay. And then Jerry Lewis immediately goes, yeah, later tonight he's going to watch The Deer Hunter. He's just going to see how that movie holds up. Again, Scorsese laughing fit. It's so good. Um, that is the king of comedy. But on a somber note, rest in peace, the great Frank Vincent. Go get your shine box. Uh, he came to prominence in Raging Bull. Although he first got his acting role back in 1976 because his buddy was Joe Pesci. So Pesci put in a word for him, and he got a role in a gambling movie. And from there, <laughs> Pesci basically told Marty, he's like, this guy's pretty good. You know, you want a bunch of Italian-Americans in your movie, he's going to make a lot of sense. And so Frank Vincent, he plays Salvi in Raging Bull. If you remember the one scene, he's out with Vicky, which is um, De Niro's Jake LaMotta's wife in the movie, and eventually Pesci is furious with him because he thinks that, you know, whatever, he shouldn't be there with him. So eventually he's just slamming the car door on Salvi. And the next scene, Frank Vincent's got, like, this terrible cast and his face is all messed up. And Pesci has to apologize to him. And he eventually can, like, slaps him on the arm that's injured. He's like, come on, come on, come on, wash the arm. So if it wasn't enough that Pesci got to give him a, a huge butt whipping there. Of course, in Goodfellas, one of the best scenes of the movie is so well done. The object of, of much destruction is Billy Bats. We first see in the movie, of course, he's in the trunk. It's all bloody, and they start stabbing him and shooting him. Um, but he's the one who just starts getting Tommy's goat, and he's telling us, and, and he knows exactly what he's doing. He's so clever about it. He knows that Pesci's this little trigger finger. So, you know, he first kind of says hello to him, but he feels like Pesci's a little bit standoffish. So then he seeks to humiliate him, which he does by mentioning that he was this little guy who used to make his shoes look like mirrors. And you can see Pesci, and it's great directing by Scorsese because he seems just slowly inching with the camera. He's dolling into Pesci, and he's slowly dolling into Vincent as they're both kind of just trading barbs. And Pesci's going back, hey, hey no more shines, Billy. He's like, hey, what's the matter with you? Like, I'm just, you know, busting your traps, whatever. Slowly pushing it. And eventually he just <laughs> he tells him to go get a shine box. Boom! Camera stops because now Pesci goes berserk. He's like, yeah, 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 come on, you feel strong. And De Niro's going to take him out. Later on, of course, they murder him. But, but it's such a great scene for Frank Vincent. Now, he got his revenge in Casino. So he finally gets to come back there. So he actually said to Marty, he goes, hey, thank God. I got my butt whipped in, in Raging Bull and Goodfellas, and I finally got some back, uh, got Pesci back in Casino. He's got the baseball bat. Just, just completely annihilates Pesci and his brother in a violent scene. Along with those Scorsese rules, by the way, the film debut was uh, Death Collector, a.k.a. Family Enforced. That was back in 1976. He was friends with Pesci because they, they were nightclub collaborators. They were actually in a band together called The Artist O'Cats. Imagine that. Now it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for The Artist O'Cats, starring Frank Vincent and Joe Pesci. And then they got this movie together. So Death Collector apparently is just this blunt, no-budget mafia movie. Never seen it before. But, of course, that went to Raging Bull, Goodfellas. He's also in Do the Right Thing. He's got a really funny role in that. Jungle Fever, he plays uh, Annabelle Sciorra's dad. So not only Marty, but Spike Lee is a, a director that took a fondness for Frank Vincent. And always interesting when you see these headlines, when someone passes away, what are they known for? The main headline actually said Sopranos actor Frank Vincent. He played Phil Leotardo in the HBO, one of, I would say HBO's greatest series, The Sopranos. He originally was um, the first option for Uncle Junior, but David Chase said, he didn't want to have too many Goodfellas actors in The Sopranos. Like he, had, he had enough of them already, so he didn't want them in prominent roles, and it would feel like Goodfellas 2.0. So he did not give Frank Vincent the role of Uncle Junior. He instead becomes Phil Leotardo, who is, who is terrific in that. So, uh, unfortunately, I, you would have thought, especially with, with De Niro and Pesci, who would have been great in The Irishman. I'm sure Marty would have found a role for Frank Vincent. Uh, but, unfortunately, he is going to be missed. And, like I said, I'm sure there's a giant shine box waiting for him up in heaven. Rest in peace, Frank Vincent, who passes away at the age of 78. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Cannot wait to watch Darren Aronofsky's new movie, Mother, getting rave reviews, especially for Michelle Pfeiffer. Some critics are saying it's a little over the top. It's a little too demented, but he has shades of black swan. But everybody is unanimous. Pfeiffer's awesome on Gold Derby. She's the front runner right now for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. So next time a review of Darren Aronofsky's new movie, Mother. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.